Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all about leaders within the industry and who better to talk to than Mark Kenwood. Welcome, Mark, to the show. Thanks, James. It's great to be here. How are you? Really, really well, thank you. And thank you so much for coming on. You know, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. So, yeah, my name's Mark, uh, Mark Kenwood. I am the zoo animal manager at Drusilla's zoo park in east sussex been uh, in the industry now for coming up a little over 30 years oh wow 30 years i'm sure some stories have been told throughout that period along with a journey to be unraveled and that's where i want to take you mark i want to really delve into that journey that real stepping stones created throughout your your life to get to the position you're in today and as I say, we've learned very, very clearly throughout this podcast that everyone roughly hasn't. So I want to bounce that back to you, Mark. Do you have those stepping stones? Do you have those life moments? And do you have a clear path which has allowed you to be the person you are and get in the position you are today? Yeah, the biggest stepping stone for me was really just that I think I was blessed in the fact that I knew this was what I was going to be doing from a very early age. In, in some capacity, it was going to be in this field. It was a calling actually, I think. Nothing else interested me. I think I probably thought about joining the military, actually, at one point, um, which is probably the thing that I maybe regret the most from not doing, funny enough, two totally different worlds. But uh, this was a calling for me. I was... Growing up, I was crippled with dyslexia. It was a really, really tough growing up in, in the mainstream educational system. Primary school, I absolutely hated for all the usual reasons of bullying. And back then, you know, not people not understanding what dyslexia is and learning difficulties and that kind of thing. So I just didn't go to school, <laughs> basically. My mum only found out about this when I was about 21. Uh, I just didn't go to school to go for the register, make sure I was booked in. And uh, then I'd just go up the woods and I'd go bird watching. I'd go catching slow worms and adders and things like that. And looking at all of the fauna and flora. And I knew I felt total peace and I just, I loved doing the bird watching. I mean, eventually I ended up in a school for dyslexic boys and that turned my life. And they very much helped me on my journey into zoos. And actually my work experience was in a zoo. Actually in the zoo that I'm in now, funny enough, because it's the second time that I've actually worked for Drusillas. Yeah, the story sort of, that you know, started there really. Weekend keeper, then I think I think I was full time at 15, didn't go to university, didn't go to college, had no interest in doing it either, climbed the ranks gradually and been at a couple of other zoos and sort of ended up back at Drusilla's, you know, where I am today. Uh, quite a journey and I, I think you, we'll touch on it later on for sure, but it, it definitely shows quite a diverse 
way into the industry and that's not just in the past that is you know even to today that pathway is still there and there are so many different ways it isn't just simply education or simply just experience it is you can pick whatever route suits you yeah absolutely i think i was probably in one of the last age groups that was lucky enough to find it a bit easier to get into the industry without qualifications it still took determination and hard work i think today we're probably looking a lot more at qualification which i think is needed so that there is justification for positions and stuff like that and you've got people that are qualified in their role that validates it more than just experience and they're equally as important no totally totally now for anyone listening obviously uh, advice is always a, a good thing and it, you can't go wrong so if you were to give advice not only to our listeners but but also maybe to yourself looking back and reflecting on your journey and so on is there any any little gem that you would give? Good question. Um, if I was to talk to my younger self, you've got to believe in doing this because the rewards that you get are working with the animals that we work with. We all know this isn't a financially a financial gain in this industry necessarily, but uh, you've got to believe in what you're doing and you've got to understand what what we're trying to achieve you've got to talk to the people that are around you and ask what is the goal here what are we trying to achieve what's the goal of my park and how do i fit into that in this industry there are many many ideologies i think everybody has got a slightly different take on what conservation is and education is and visitor perspective and that kind of thing. And somehow you have to amalgamate all of these ideas, especially maybe amongst some of the more senior members of the team and managers and directors. And I know from my position that I'm kind of a middleman. I need to make it work for the keepers. And I need to make it work for the directors because it's their business. And I mean, I work, my, my collection is a privately owned collection. Uh, and, for, you know, first and foremost, it's got to work for the animals. So you've got to find that balance. Uh, and that can be tricky to do sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And I think to go alongside that perfectly, is there one trait or attribute inside yourself which has allowed you to drive and, and once again get into the role that you are in today? I think having patience is a virtue in this job you've you've got to have you've got to have patience working with so many so many people it's obviously important to have patience when you're working around animals you can't be uh, like a hard hitter if you like i think you know that's a skill in itself being calm being patient and uh, listening to people taking on board other people's ideas finding that balance it's a tough one to juggle and also as you know from being out in the parks and talking to the visitors and explaining what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And we all know, linking to that, that this industry, it can get overwhelming at times. It can feel crazy and it can be intense. You know, a lot can go right, but a lot can go wrong. And it's balancing everything amongst that. So the question with all of this is, how have you learned to turn the crazy, the overwhelming, the, the feelings which maybe don't suit management and the, the upper tier too well, and embrace that and turn that into a positive and a structured way of pushing the yourself along with your collection forward. Um, I think, that, yeah, as I say, having a clear understanding of, you know, the mission of the park and what is expected of you personally. I have a very good relationship with the people that I 
work for and meet regularly. We're all, we're only doing this for the one reason. We're only, we're, we're doing this for preservation of species. You know, without going off track too much. If you have a tough day, just take a step outside the office, go and have a walk around. Remember what you're doing this for. You know, we're, we're lucky enough that we can do that because this is such an important part of my life. I don't find I lose focus that easily and working around like-minded people helps to fuel that focus and people are looking up to you and you need to present yourself in a way that you're inspiring your team all the time Uh, there are many many different personalities in the keeping forces that we have people have grown up very differently with very different expectations and um, it is a demanding job which I think we'll probably come on to later there's a lot of mental health challenges in this job you know some of the things that we have to face can be quite a lot to take home so you've got to wear many many hats and you know be able to talk talk to your staff but yeah I find it very easy if, if I have a bad day I just go into the park and you know just take take some time to have a look at the animals and think yeah that's that, it's quite clear why I'm doing this and uh, I want to go back and try and do, you know, make sure I'm doing a good job. Yeah, no, totally, totally. And, you know, linking to all of that, it, it doesn't always go to plan. Sometimes, unfortunately, things just happen. Fate, fate kicks in and, and things don't go to plan and sometimes do go go wrong. Mistake being a very strong word. But, but how do you learn from, I, I, we'll call them mistakes, but how do you learn from those those moments where it doesn't go quite right? and turn them into a, a successful moment of something which you can learn from and, and grow from. As you say, everybody makes mistakes and you have to make mistakes. A mistake is only an issue if you don't learn from it. If you repeat it over and over again, then, you know, there's obviously a bigger problem that needs discussing. So, you know, and I've made, you know, numerous mistakes in my life. And depending on what the mistake is, I mean, the mistakes that we have, I mean, it might be, I don't know, somebody might have missed a padlock, which can be both a big thing and not such a big thing or it might be you know something more severe at management level but got to you know talk about these things yeah make sure it doesn't happen again but as i say it depends on what the mistake is really yeah no totally totally now obviously with with any aspect of our role you've touched on it throughout all that advice is it is the people we work around it is the the team that we have around us to support us with whatever role we serve within our collections what, what do you look for when employing a keeper? And, and for anyone listening, is there anything they can do to create themselves as an all-rounded keeper? Uh, so, yeah, as I said, I didn't come from uh, a strong educational background. That's made things difficult, I suppose, as well uh, in certain areas. But also I found it a blessing. I don't feel that it's set me back at all by not having a degree. And as we talked about before, I'm hugely focused on this position and I'm hugely focused on this industry. I believe in what we're doing with like-minded people. I think we can make this a lot better and improve on it all the time. But I think, you know, I've done countless interviews and read hundreds of thousands of CV. When I personally, and all of my comments today are personal comments, they are not, as we've spoken about, they are not a reflection from the business that I work for. When I look at a CV, I kind of try to read between the lines because as an application form, you're selling yourself. It may not be the clearest impression of who you are and what you what you want to bring to the team, uh, which is why the actual interview itself is so important. I'm not specifically looking for their qualifications. I'm looking for the effort that they've made in their journey to where they are today with their volunteer work. Yes, I'm definitely looking at their grades and if they've been to university, that's phenomenal. But for me, not the be all and end all. And I'm sure, you know, 
I wouldn't be alone in thinking that we've worked with people that have had degrees that maybe haven't had that rapport with the animals or that rapport with the team. And equally on the opposite side, there are people that haven't got those qualifications and maybe those life skills from advanced education to be in the working team uh, and around those animals and perhaps don't have from that educational background um, an understanding of behaviours. So you really want to find that Goldilocks area in a person. Personality is one of the first and foremost things that I look for. If that person has got to fit into the team, if they don't fit into the team, you can upset the whole dynamic. We mix animals all the time. We put new groups together, new pairs together. Genetically, they might be absolutely fantastic, but personally, they may not get on. Uh, and it, it's like putting keepers together in an enclosure and uh, expecting them to get on. But your, your, your new member of staff needs to fit in with the team. And that's really, really important in an interview for that manager to take that into account, not just their employment history and what they've done before. You need, need to consider that person in your team so that the balance is right there because they complement each other. I'm very, very fortunate that I have a team of keepers that largely all get on really well and support each other. Uh, and once you've employed your team as well, I think it's very, very important to nurture that person. I meet all of my keepers at a minimum of once a quarter, almost like a mini appraisal, I suppose, to review their progress. And the, the, the meeting can be about anything. It can be about personal circumstances and what's affecting them and how that's affecting work as well as you know how they're progressing within the team and how they're progressing within their um within their role and the direction that they want to head when when new keepers start with us i, I might meet with them at least once a week to begin with to uh, give them the feedback that they need yeah you've absolutely smashed that answer thank you so so much and i i guess to conclude it and to bring it all back together and, and bring it back to it is the age-old question is something never answered, answered in this industry, and that is, what is more valuable? Is it three years in experience or three years in the form of a degree or an equivalent? What one is more valuable to you and what one would you advise to anyone listening? It's the biggest question out there. Good luck, Mark. Over to you. It's a tough one. As I say, I wouldn't want to offend anybody. Uh, and I always admire people that have been to university and really, really put the effort in and probably put themselves in a situation where they're so driven to be the best at what they want to achieve to the point they've actually put themselves in really difficult financial situations to enter an organization that at the start of your career is probably financially difficult so you know i take my hat off to them i personally look at the person if they've got three years previous experience in a zoo they've possibly got a foot in the door because i've got something that i can actually look at and see how they operated in the in this job. But that's not taking it away from anybody that um, hasn't got act three actual years. I think the key thing is the person. If somebody's got three years experience and they've got a bad personality, they're not the right person for the job. And equally, if somebody's got three years of studying or four years of studying and every qualification under the sun, but they haven't got the right personality for the role. If you wouldn't put that person in an enclosure where you've got species that, you know, very much feed off of negative energy or whatever the case might be, 
it's not going to work. I've seen that firsthand many, many times. So yeah, they're both equally as important, but for me, it's about the person. Somebody steps into an interview and they, they possibly don't have either of those. They might be coming in as a trainee or an apprentice. And I've got some of those apprentices and they're like, look, I'm going to give this my all. This is what I want to be doing. I won't let you down. And you believe it. Give them the chance, Christ. They could be the next senior keeper. They could be the next head keeper in, you know, five, 10, 15 years time. I mean, it's about the person. Yeah, for sure. A really, really nice spin on that question. Now, if it really is about the person then and getting into that first interview process, getting that CV on the desk, it is about that person. What can they do? What more can they do to get a job with you? What is it that you're looking for? What little golden star can they add on? Which extra extra skill set can they have to further themselves, to give themselves that extra chance? I think there is. Um, it, you know, you can have lots of attractive qualities on your CV, such as, I don't know, maybe chainsaw experience or experience within the building trade, creativity, photography. It could, there's, there's so many... Zookeeping isn't what it used to be, is it? It's not just about cleaning and feeding uh, and making sure your animals are all happy at the end of the day. We have to be good administratively from a media perspective, a veterinary understanding and nutritional understanding, budgetary stuff. It could be absolutely so many things that we need to sort of perfect ourselves in. So if somebody has got a particular skill set and it may be maths, sell it on your application form because that could come in really, really handy in the interview for, for those, uh, maybe those students that are listening all day. When you're in your interview, take the time to look at the zoo that is interviewing you and uh, look at what their mission objectives are and what their conservation investments are. Know the zoo. It's not, you're not just walking in to work with a bunch of polar bears and you're not just walking in to work with penguins. You want to know what that collection's investment in that species is and how you're going to fit in there. And if you're the right person to fit in there, as I said, there's many different um, ideologies as, as to what zookeeping is. My zoo is very, very much about attracting the younger audience and the education of the younger audience so that we are captivating those children at a really young age so they grow up with a really positive mindset on animals and that starts with guinea pigs and that starts with domestic animals and they are worth their weight in gold when you're asking people to be interested in animals because you can't ask a three-year-old necessarily to be fanatical i don't know about a gaboon viper you know they've been learning about guinea pigs and rabbits and chickens and in in farms you know to begin with and that's where the captivation begins and then it progresses you know up to all the different species so we focus very very much on education of the young of the young audience and equally we have to do conservation as well it probably leads us on to a, another topic you know in a little bit my collection is regarded as maybe a children's zoo I think. I don't really know what that means because I don't think there's a children's animal and there's an adult animal. You know, we've got an epic collection, something I'm hugely proud of. And a lot of those animals exist in some of the bigger parks, in your park, in, you know, ZSL, in Whipsonate and Cotswolds and that. Yeah, many different approaches to how animals are held within human care, I like to say. A really nice way to pull together the building of a team. And we now move on to the largest part of this podcast episode. It's called The Big Questions and it tackles some of the more in-depth 
and unheard of answers from this industry about some of the harder hitting topics. So number one, I want to take you, Mark, all the way over to the USA. It's a demographic survey done over there on their keeping teams ages. And more importantly, there seems to be a checkout age of around the early 30s. Now, we can see that roughly replicated over here in the UK. And you can put that down to a whole wealth of things from simply just simply evaluating life goals. We all did that after COVID and I'm sure we all know someone who did, let alone actually beforehand, you get to that age, you think about family, you think about costs, especially in the modern day, we all know about living costs and overall it can get overwhelming. So I guess that is a big factor behind it, but I feel like we all know there might be more behind it. So the question I've got for you is, do you ever think we're going to get considered an actual trade and not labour but linking to this and also do you feel that there's any way that we can help this going forwards yeah it's probably not something that i perhaps deal with um and i know there are people within the british zoological system that are dealing with this you know and i would plug maybe nikki needham here I think she's an absolute champion. I don't know where we'd be without her. And I know this is more her remit. The industry definitely needs that recognition. And there needs to be somebody focusing on pushing the DIMS, of course, to being a recognised, uh, more recognised qualification within zoos to make this a skilled industry. I don't know why it isn't. I think because it's such a, a job that, as you know, everybody says, oh, you've got the best job in the world. And Maybe there, there always are going to be people that will do this job. They can afford not to make it a recognised skill or um, I, don't, I don't know, but um, it definitely should. Within the industry, there are some hugely skilled people at all levels. It is being looked at. I know it's being looked at, but I don't know who signs that off and how we how we achieve that. You know, having worked in this line of work for a long, long time, I've heard keepers say, you know, they that they want to be a keeper. They possibly don't want to go much higher than head keeper because they perhaps lose uh, some of the contact with their animals. I said this myself. I think as you get older and as you go through the industry and life takes a hold and family and mortgages and there comes a point I mean I'm thinking about you know what does my retirement look like and how am I going to fund my retirement on a zookeeper's wage you naturally start making these changes mindset changes you know I remember working as a full-time keeper if you want I still regard myself as a zookeeper but I'm a zookeeper at animal management level I remember thinking that if I go much higher then I'm going to lose that contact with the animals there was a period where I probably knew the name of every single animal in the park so the older I've got, I, you do become a bit more interested or you end up being in a position where you have to be a bit more focused on maybe not just the, your, your animals you're working with, but the collection plan, the group structure, the population management. And you're doing equally just as much work as the keeper on the ground that is actually working on the day to day welfare of that animal. And that's where I am now. I think about population management on a day to day basis. Uh, I rely on the keepers to give me the information on the uh, individuals and what they say is hugely important and has to be taken into my decision. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I and people in my position are making decisions for generations to come as well. And that may not always 
that may not always work with what's happening today in the enclosure, but it's about species preservation. And then all the EEPs come into that and, uh, you know, your regional collection plans and what have you. It's such a big picture. You're inspected on so much and you've got to provide so much justification for the decisions that you make. Your, Your park for, you know, for those students perhaps listening, the park isn't a single entity, you know, it's part of a wider organisation and it's under an umbrella and all a lot of the decisions, if not all of the decisions that we make are inspected and you've got to provide justification for and it's a lot of pressure. So from the keepers doing day-to-day care of keeping animals alive and fit and healthy and monitoring their health and their weight and the group dynamics up to the curators and the managers together making these life-changing decisions for animals that we can't always read and understand and we have some we haven't had in captivity for all that long and basically deciding on every element of their day-to-day lives with their best interests at heart and i'd like to say for the most part getting it pretty bloody right uh, getting it down near, you know, accurate in many cases, or certainly with the best intentions. Why is that not a recognised skill set at the moment? Why, why, why is somebody not allowing that to be as much as uh, an electrician or, you know, a vets are? That's a recognised skill set, and I'm not trying to liken keepers to vets, but we're in the same field and we're doing very similar jobs in a way. So I think it definitely should be a recognised skill set. Absolutely. And it's very, very challenging. Emotionally, physically, um, mentally, it's, it's, it's very challenging, but hugely rewarding. Yeah, that's number one out of the way. We're now on to number two. Number two leads us to the new change coming to the UK. It's literally on our doorstep, if not already here for us all to see. And we are already changing for it. It's a 100 page document, which is allowing us to evolve as a industry. Now, this involves conservation, it involves education, it involves animal welfare at its heart. But I want to focus on the conservation aspect. And I want to ask you the question, with this change coming, how do you feel it's going to change us as a whole? Is it going to impact us? And I guess what what, what conservation are you already doing to achieve this? Because I think this is a big part of the industry that we just don't say enough about the true good already going on. It's a big hot topic at the moment, isn't it? And, um, you know, when we talk about conservation, I think quite often that minds start to go abroad as to what we're doing abroad and how we're saving this species and that species. And it's really important to remember that conservation also starts at home. And you can do a huge amount in your local community. And under the uh, sort of scrutiny of the people that inspect us and, you know, work with us, um, that if you are organising something like a code crossing, uh, or a hedgehog crossing or something like that. that. That goes a long, long way and you can earn some huge brownie points from stuff like that. For my collection, we're a small, medium-sized collection. It is difficult for us, you know, we don't necessarily have the financial resources to make a huge dent in, in the way that conservation is looked at from other, other institutions maybe. 
Um, and for a long time, we have been raising awareness and raising finances and uh, working with some of these uh, organisations to promote the good word. And that's worked really, really well for a long time. I wouldn't be in a position where I could financially support a team of keepers going abroad to support that organization i think is important and i think keepers are so driven that they will take themselves there as well and we can you can always look at how you can support that even though we may not be able to fund it you know uh, all in uh, i know we do a lot of local wildlife conservation and we uh, have been working with various external ngos and um, conservation organizations that kind of thing with penguins with golden uh, golden lions even with some of the working with organizations that aren't particularly focusing on critically endangered species uh, we do a lot of work with sloco the sloth conservation foundation so i'll be interested to see where this goes and what pressure is put on it because it will make life difficult if we have to consolidate all of the efforts that we are doing by channeling those funds into promoting one project and making that a success we are hugely neglecting a lot of the stuff and the good work we are doing in multiple areas uh, and I think that there will be some forgiveness as well I don't think that they will stipulate well, I hope they won't stipulate too hard that you've got to do this there's going to be there is going to be some leeway I'm sure otherwise it yeah it's gonna it's gonna really um, hamper you know a lot of what other collections are, and collections like my own are doing we have been involved in, uh, you know, conservation projects for a very, very long time. My organisation has been going for over 90 years and doing conservation in one way or another for that long. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see where that goes. Yeah, that's number two out of the way. On to that final big question, and that is a collection plan. Collection plans are essential to all of our collections, whether it be a wildlife park, safari park, zoo, whatever you want to call it, across the world. Great focus and a forward feed feeding action towards that collection. So what is important about a collection plan? How is yours unique within the industry? And if you had to start again, would you change anything? I'm very lucky, actually. Um, I think probably because I've been at my park for quite a long time. I've been involved in the collection plan for a long time. Um, as I said, we're very much geared towards the younger audience or, you know, the attracting a younger audience. So we don't have any large animals. We've got stuff that uh, children would very much be would be attracted to small and fluffy and cute and colourful and that kind of thing. The species that we select and the collection plan that we have is there to work for the park to help the business and keep the business going as well as contribute to you know the wider industry as well i don't think i would change much in the way of the collection that we have we we all have meerkats <laughs> like it or not but they're probably one of the species that actually earns their key i think difficulties come with things like um invasive species that's that's a bit, I find that a bit of a tricky one with, uh, with things like Coates being on that list. I mean, Coates tick the box and they tick every box and they're an absolutely incredible species. So that's, that's really sad, really sad time for, uh, 
you know, koalas are things, as well as other species. But I don't think I would change too much. We've got lots of things in the pipeline, which I can't talk about just yet. A collection plan, ideally, I guess, wants to represent um, a selection of animals from all different taxa and genre and that kind of thing. And that's not always possible. There are animals that we, we don't represent particularly at the moment. Um, but it's something that we're, we're always looking at. Like uh, uh, Aquatics aren't big in our collection at the moment, but we're looking at that. And marine animals, that's not a big thing at all. And that's a lot harder to achieve, certainly for a collection that's my size. A collection plan is, is you know, it's kind of a living document as well. And uh, we are trying to uh, bring in things that people recognise and um, have an understanding of so that they can relate to it. Um, and that works, you know, both for the business and for the species. Uh, well, I think we've got a fantastic collection and a pretty good collection plan uh, going forward. So yeah, I don't think I'll probably change too much. Hope not, because I wrote, I wrote a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, very, very well put. Now that thankfully is the end of the big questions. We've managed to get through and we're on the straight and narrow towards the end of this podcast episode. We now lead to the quick fire round. As our listeners will know by now, it can either fly by or erupt into conversation. So let's see how we get on, Mark, and give it a go. Number one, quite a simple one, I would say, and that is, what is your favourite animal? I think anybody who knows me uh, will probably be able to answer this for me. But uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with lot, lots of different species over the years, and I've spent most of my career working with primates, which hold a huge place in my heart. But uh, I think my my passion has always been with Xenarthra species, more specifically with sloths. You know, that, that that's where it is for me. Uh, and it, it always interests me, people's sort of favourite species and what it is that attracts them to those particular animals and why. Um, I, I, I love gorillas. I've always loved gorillas. That's, that's, that's very important to me. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, it, it, I don't think anything's ever come close to, to working with sloths. Uh, other than perhaps, you know, anteaters, tamandua's, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Okay, next one up then is the best side of the industry. I really take a lot of enjoyment and uh, comfort from uh, the networking in this business and being around like-minded people, as we spoke about before, being able to really sort of geek out for a couple of days at a conference and talk to other people and gain further insight into something that you're so passionate about. Uh, it's really, really lovely to be in a job that you love for so many different reasons. Um, no, none of us are doing this for any other reason than we wanted to work with animals and we wanted to contribute to the preservation of these animals in some way, no matter what level you're working at. As you know, it does come with its challenges. There are, you know, things that we take home as well in terms of understanding things, you know, mentally and dealing with uh, trauma and that kind of thing. But uh, it's such a tight industry um and uh that on that on top of being able to occasionally work alone in an exhibit just you and your animals and uh you know take some time out doing that i think is is phenomenal and uh, i do enjoy sitting in sitting in some of these meetings that i go to seeing where the work is going and the efforts that we've made and uh 
listening to some of the keepers that are traveling around the world um, on some of these projects and bringing back you know where the funding has gone and what the what difference it's made and and I think that kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions about you know being in this job is uh, with with new keepers you know just when you're in there and you feel tired and you're soaking wet and you're covered in crap um just you know just remember this it is a huge privilege and somebody's taken the time to think you're the person for the job um and you know always give it your all some very very good words now the next one then is how would you improve the industry uh i think i'd you know if i had a if i had a magic wand i'd like to improve uh the government support um to make things more available to us help us with our message help us with uh you know what we're trying to achieve take away a lot of the red tape you know as we were saying earlier about maybe making this a recognized uh, occupation uh the you know all the zoos that we have all work in very different ways with different uh, different objectives and that kind of thing and it's down to each person each collection to you know make their own decisions but i know all of the all keepers would want me to say improve wages uh, <laughs> but that's uh, that was an obvious one yeah i think you know improve helping us improve i'd like to, i'd like to be able to make improvements to the bigger picture to make this this more of a success uh, than it already is um, so that uh, so that we can achieve more than we are achieving. I think where we can, we try to uh, talk about the successes that the um, this line of work has achieved. And there are some people out there doing some great jobs with that. But I think, you know, that's something that we need to push um, so that people see where the hard work is going and where the money's going and what the money's doing and that kind of thing. But I don't know, overall, I think, you know, it, it is what it is. And I think it, I think it's pretty good. There's so many areas that we do improving this, this industry that we could look at and tackle. But I think as long as our uh, mindset is right, and the direction is right and we are all working together and we're continuing to strive for that that that's what's important yeah i'm sure you'll have many people agreeing with you on that one now the next question i've got for you then very hot topic at the moment especially in the world and that is what is your top tip for mental health and well-being you've got to be able to talk to your superiors your superiors need to be people that are able to listen and understand that it's not just about work we have these sessions in my collection as i was talking about earlier so people can walk into the office ask they can arrange to come and see me or whoever it is they feel most comfortable talking to and they can discuss their troubles that they're facing at the moment and that can be whether at home or it can be in the workplace. And we're seeing more and more that mental health is a big issue. Within our line of work, we do see animals that pass away. Animals do get sick. Animals do reach old age. And everybody knows how it is when your dog dies. It's really traumatic. Uh, and it's, it's, really, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And we're in an industry where we've got hundreds of animals. And it needs to, I think there does need to be an outlet for that. And that can affect the morale of your team. And that could probably bring down, um, you know, the workplace production. And so there needs to be the ability for somebody to be able to address the staff or the staff to be able to talk to the manager and talk things through, certainly within the workplace. And I think there's also an expectation now for organ any organisation to have a mental health representative that can guide you 
to external sources that you can talk to so that that is, uh, you know, it's at the, very much at the forefront of uh, any company's uh, mind for staff welfare. But, you know, for, for our line of work, I think it is important that every, uh, every keeper has something external to the zoo. I know I'm a bit of a, a zoo geek and I'm quite proud of that. But uh, for me, I very much love horticulture. Um, I love gardening and uh, I don't necessarily look like a gardener. And uh, as well as, you know, and I enjoy the, the motorbike and going out on the bike with my partner and uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, you've got to have something outside of work as well. You've got to have a release. It's very, very important. Keeping up with your health and your exercise, mental health, physical health, that's really, really important. Make sure you're talking to somebody. Some top tips there, Mark. Some great, great words. Now, the next one can take you absolutely anywhere in the world, and that is globally, what zoo would you like to visit and why? Good question, yeah. Uh, Christ, there's so many. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see San Diego because I've heard so much about it, and I've been fortunate enough to go to quite a few of the states, uh, the zoos in the states, um, and, uh, you know, they always seem to have like uh, fantastic funding, very much like San Francisco Zoo. Really liked it there. I've been to very different zoos. I've been to some zoos that are hugely well funded and then some that are not so well funded. Uh, I've been to, I think you pronounce it Dusset Zoo in Thailand, I think it is. And although it's not that well funded, it's still a great zoo. Um, and their animals, to me, look to be in fantastic health pretoria zoo as well um that was one of the that was a great collection i spent hours and hours there could have done two three days there easily but i think more so than just one particular zoo i, I i'd like to do more of the european zoos i've probably done more of the you know zoos further afield than i have european zoos but i think a lot of the european zoos are i kind of feel that they're 10 years ahead of what we're doing over here and we could really look at some of their working practices to help support where we're going yeah there's some there's some great parks throughout Europe and you know and there are some fabulous collections in this country you know as well yeah a sport for choice sport for choice some really good shouts there Mark I'm sure everyone's shouting out their own ideas as we go, as there are many across the globe, and you've named just a few. Now, the next question I've got for you, I need you to put on your mystic hat, and I need you to tell me, in 20 to 30 years, will zoo still be here? Will we still be doing the same as we are today? Or will they disappear altogether? What is the future to hold for these amazing collections across our globe? Mark, over to you. I've watched the change myself, I think, when I started. Probably because I was at keeper level then, it was maybe what it wasn't as regulated, whereas it is today, and for the right reasons. I find now that there is a lot more administration in what we do. You have to document more or less everything. Um, you have to document your temperatures, temperature changes, what you did about your temperature changes just there's so much more to this than just working with the animals cleaning and feeding and the veterinary side of things now uv is is new it's still quite new um and i think we're only just scratching the surface of that and as we were just talking about the mental welfare of the keepers is now a big thing um and i think that that's only going to um grow more 
Yeah, I think I think it's gonna it will change dramatically, and I think for some in some areas it will get harder, and there will be more expectation uh, and maybe outside pressure. We've uh, already looked at, you know, and still are looking at the whole elephants in captivity, and I think. You know, there's probably that will probably extend to other species as well, big cats and large primates and that kind of thing. And uh, I think you know we'll deal with we'll we'll, de- we'll deal with that. We'll justify that because we're doing a fabulous job with with that anyway. But it's justification for what we're doing. I think is what is uh, going to be difficult from an outside perspective. Um, e- everything is governed so much tighter now in in all walks of life. So. I can't see why that'd be any different for us. Very well put. Now, the next one for you, Mark, then, is delving a little deeper, and that is who within the industry is your idol? That is a good question. Um, I've been very lucky to work with the great keepers that I, you know, I look up to. I think uh, for me, in sort of in-house, uh, it's people like I was lucky enough to work with John Pullen back years years back, and John John Buchan. And I know a lot of people won't remember these names, but when I started out, it was their energy working with the animals that they were working with when they were keepers. Uh, that inspired me to uh, to do this. Mike Carman as well, who was the head keeper of uh, primates at London Zoo at the time. Oh, crikey, this, this, yes, so, so many. Even down to the keepers, look, you know, looking at what the keepers do, you know, I, I look up to them because it's, it's not easy. It is a tough job financially, you know, as well. They come in every day, almost minimum wage, maximum effort, and that, that's something to be respected as well. So I definitely take my hat to them. Have been there some very kind words there mark now last question for the whole episode and that is can you sum this whole episode up for us all in only three words uh okay um rewarding would be the first one probably the most important one you can stop and look and you know listen and reflect uh challenging and uh privileged yeah very very fitting way to pull this whole podcast together and really conclude the whole industry as a whole thank you so much mark for myself and the listeners for coming on sharing your journey your stories and your words of wisdom it's been a real honor to have you on thanks james and thanks for doing this uh it's absolutely fantastic and i wish you all the luck with it some very kind words there from you mark thank you so so much and hopefully we'll get you on again very very soon love to that'd be great thank you mark thanks a lot bye And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.